Job chapter 17, reading the entirety of that chapter. God's holy and inspired word. Give your attention to the reading of it. Job 17. God's word. Whole chapter. My spirit is broken. My days are extinct. The graveyard is ready for me. Surely there are mockers about me, and my eye, my eye dwells on their provocation. Lay down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there who will put up security for me? Since you have closed their hearts to understanding, therefore you shall not let them triumph. He who informs against his friends to get a share of their of their property, the eyes of his children will fail. He has made me a byword of the peoples, and I am one before whom men spit. My eye has grown dim from vexation, and all my members are like a shadow. The upright are appalled at this, and the innocent stirs himself up against the godless. Yet the righteous holds to his way, And he who has clean hands grows stronger and stronger. But you come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man among you. My days are past. My plans are broken off. The desires of my heart. They make night into day. The light, they say, is near to the darkness. If I hope for Sheol as my house, if I make my bed in darkness, if I say to the pit, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother, or my sister, who, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will it go down to the bars of Sheol? Shall we descend together into the dust? As for the reading of God's word, May bless it to us. So in our modern America, we like to think that our culture is better than those archaic cultures of honor and shame. Our scientific and empathetic democracy is superior to those countries with honor killings. And yet this assessment might not be as accurate as we think it is. For example, since the rise of social media, we often hear of online bullying where some poor middle schooler is teased and harassed online to the point of suicide. Similarly, in the last handful of years, Twitter mobs have assaulted violators of political correctness to cancel them. Cancel culture is public shaming with concrete consequences. Jobs lost, money forfeited, deserted by friends, and loss of face and reputation. And the fear of being canceled pushes many to be cowards with respect to the truth. Better to conform than to say nothing and be, or say something and be canceled. Well, Job also knew, even more so than us, the pain of being shamed and canceled. And as he continues to lament his public humiliation, he brings into greater focus for us the true nature of our hope. So Job is in the middle of his response to Eliphaz's second speech. As you'll remember, Eliphaz blasted Job for breaking the fear of the Lord, the very pinnacle of impiety. 
then he vividly described the torturous life and certain judgment of the world only to drop on Job a you are the man. Job was the wicked man, and as his suffering so obviously showcased. Eliphaz basically told Job that all his agony was the wages for his sin. And to this, Job retorted in chapter 16 that his friends were miserable comforters, troublesome doctors that only injected in him more pain and toil. For Job's misery was not just any normal case of the flu. Instead, Job described how the Lord had become his enemy. Thus, Job lamented long in chapter 16 how God had mauled him like a raging bear. With a baker's dozen of allusions to the book of Lamentations, Job wept out loud how he had been God-forsaken. And yet after this gruesome dirge that basically made our ears bleed, Job had a sudden sudden turn. The gray clouds of his depression were split open by a sudden ray of faith. As he confessed at the end of the last chapter, his confidence that he is a witness in heaven. He was sure that he had a heavenly advocate who would plead his case with God to vindicate him. In short, Job trusted in the merciful God to intercede with God as enemy in order to publish the truth that Job was suffering for nothing. Even though God was completely hostile to Job at the moment, Job's faith held on to God as his friend. This was an impressive expression of Job's faith and loyalty to God even amid his lonely misery. And yet, as you know, when you are down in the dumps, your mood can shift quite quickly. Like weather in the mountains, your emotions can go from sunny to stormy in minutes. Thus, after this beam of faith, the gloomy fog rolls back in. Joe believes that God is, is his heavenly witness, but God had better speed it up before Job goes the way of all flesh, down the path of no return. Indeed, few are the days left to Job and he, as his spirit is ruined. The flame of his days is quickly being extinguished. Verse 1. His breathing is labored. His life force is emas- em- emaciated. Death is not merely knocking on Job's door, but it is settled into his chest like a bad case of bronchitis. Indeed, in verse 1, he literally says, mine is the graveyard. His last possession is his coffin. All Job has left to his name is a hole in the ground. He is so near death that he is one foot in the grave and another on the banana peel. And not only is Job sitting six feet down in his grave, but others are throwing dirt on him to give death a hand. Mockers, he says, are all about him. His eye faints by all their provocations. Now, these mockers are surely the three friends, but they also extend further to include the general public. Remember, Job is out in the ash dump. 
That is, his neighbors and community have rejected and banished Job as well. This mocking, then, is the communal shame piled on Job to cancel him. This shame means that Job has lost all status and honor. He's denied all worth and value. Love, respect, and kindness have evaporated for Job and been replaced by hostility, scorn, and hatred. And such deep and total disrespect is no mere flesh wound, but it bruises the inner chambers of your heart and the unseen parts of your soul. To be mocked as worthless and undesirable is a concrete injury that's heavier than sand and colder than ice. And being ridiculed by his neighbors and his friends, Job's faith then again turns to God in verse 3. He says to God, lay a pledge for me with you, O God. Who else will be my guarantor? With zero humans left to help him, Job asked God again to be his surety, to be his guarantor. And a surety is one who co-signs your loan. A surety pays your debt when you default. He fronts your bail when, so that you can get out of jail. A guarantor is your protector and rescuer. Thus, Job has lost all social credit. He's up to his neck in the debt of shame, and there's nothing he can do to earn back his honor. He knows his own integrity is intact. Job's uprightness deserves respect, but he's incapable of proving it and getting it back. Thus, God must vindicate Job against the public shame. He needs to pay off the shame debt of Job. Indeed, God must be Job's surety because, as he says next, God blinded the three friends and the neighbors. You closed their hearts to understanding. God hid reason from their minds. That is, why are his friends dumb to the reality that Job is suffering for nothing? Why can't his community recognize Job's uprightness amid his suffering? Well, because God prevented them, at least according to Job. It's the Lord who has hindered them from understanding. Therefore, Job asserts that God cannot let them triumph. The mockers laugh at Job as a sinner who is cursed. The friends battle with Job in order to prove that they are right and he is wrong. But the truth is they're wrong. They're ignorant of the truth. So God must be Job's guarantor to vindicate him from the shame and to deny victory to the friends. Once again, we see Job's loyal faith. Even though God is like an enemy towards Job in the present, Job can only look to God for help and deliverance. God has hidden his face from Job, but Job will not turn from the Lord. Indeed, he has nowhere else to go, for all of society has rejected him. Now, verse 5 here is quite difficult. More than likely, this verse is proverbial about a person who rats out his friends for personal gain. 
Now, that is, the person spreads malicious rumors about his friends in order to fatten his wallet, be this financially or socially. This is spilling dirt on your friends to make yourself look better. It's punching below the belt. And this is what the friends are doing to Job. Note he says next, he's a byword of the peoples. The friends make Job to be the laughingstock of the nations. He's just a bad joke. They paint him with the colors of a Hitler. He Next he says he is literally spit to the face. Passerbys not only spit on Job, but they're so grossed out by him as if he is the loogie on the sidewalk. The public is so disgusted by Job, they cross the street rather than walk by him. Job's going blind by all this cruel shame, and his body is fading away like a shadow. Indeed, the friend's treatment of Job is so bad that the that the upright person should be appalled by this. Normally, a good person is morally outraged, outraged when godless people betray their friends. That is, the decent people of society should be appalled that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar so cruelly shamed Job. They'd throw Job under the bus to increase their own social clout. This is rather despicable. Though as a social pariah, pariah, no one comes to Job's defense. No one bothers to be outraged for his sake. And yet all this shaming will not get Job to capitulate. Verse 9, the righteous holds on to his way. One with pure hands grows stronger. This is Job asserting that he will remain steadfast in his righteousness. He will not compromise his integrity or uprightness. That is, when you are publicly shamed, one of the sharpest temptations is cowardice. Cancel culture bullies you to give up the truth and to conform. If you're disrespected for righteousness, then fear teases you to win back your honor by compromising. Shame forces you to choose social acceptance over moral righteousness. But Job will not forsake his integrity. He will not let their cruel shame push him to sell out on his uprightness. In fact, his purity of heart will only make him stronger, more firm and resolute in his righteousness. He will not budge from clinging to God and from holding on to his uprightness. Against all the shame of the world and all the disrespect of his friends, Job's steadfast virtue will not give in. Thus, next, he tells his friends to just go away. Turn and go away, all of you. For I cannot find a wise man among you. Job has found all three of his friends wanting of wisdom. They present themselves as sages, but they're stuffed shirts. Their professed wisdom is a veneer that is empty inside. Thus he tells them to take a hike. Who needs enemies when you have friends like these? Besides, 
Job has enough of his own stress to deal with. He doesn't have time for these backstabbing friends as well. Thus now Job again laments how his days are short and fleeting. He says all his plans are shredded. The desires of his heart have been cut in half. Here you can practically taste the bitterness of Job's despondency. The smog of gloom again blinds out the sun. For as you know, your truest plans for life is what keeps you going. The desires of your heart get you up in the morning. They keep you putting one foot in front of the other. When you have a goal, a purpose, a destination, life is worth living. But if these are stolen from you, if your desires are murdered and your objectives are ripped in pieces, then what's the point? Remember, Job's career has exploded. His kids are in the ground. All his dreams are dead. He has nothing left to live for. Truly, the honesty of Job's depression encourages us that we are not alone or unique in our melancholy. It is not unusual for life to get this bleak. Indeed, Job Job isn't just down in the dumps, but he cannot make himself better. Telling himself to stop it doesn't work. Indeed, the subjects of verse 12 are his desires. Literally, my desires would make night into day. That is, he wants to change his nightmare of sadness into a day of happiness. Yet the second part of verse 12 says literally, but light light is brief due to darkness. He desires the light, but darkness keeps beating it back. His emotions strain for the sunrise, but as soon as the sun peeks over the horizon, it goes back down. No matter how hard he tries, Job is helpless against his own sadness and melancholy. He's a victim of his own depression. Thus, if the light of life is soon to be put out, then one's hope has nowhere else to go but death. If I hope for Sheol as my house. Now, for Job, to refer to Sheol as his home, as his bed, is a positive characterization. For your home is your residence of your belonging and your protection. Your bed is your sanctuary of rest and security. Indeed, Job calls the pit of Sheol my father. The worm of decay he dresses as my sister, my mother. These are terms of um, intimate affection and warmth. They are familiar names of submission and love. Job's point is that if his only hope for comfort, relief, and vindication lies in death, then he will embrace Sheol like he's hugging his mommy. Job here links back to what he said in chapter 14 when he asked God to hide him in Sheol until his wrath passed. There, Job affirmed that Sheol would be his safe house until the end of the age when God would then bring him into the age to come. 
So, with his desires for life shredded, if Job's only hope for honor to be vindicated lies in death, then he will call Sheol daddy. When life is hopeless, hope desperately says, home, sweet Sheol. However, there's a problem with this hope. As Job protests, but then where is my hope? Who will see my hope? Will my hope reach down to the bars of Sheol with me? Can we enter the dust together? When it comes to things like hope, especially the hope for restoration, there needs to be a balance. The hope you feel needs to be matched by the hope that you will obtain. If you hope for a baby boy and only get a puppy, that's really not a hope fulfilled. A puppy is a wonderful companion, but it's not the same thing as a kid. Thus, Job's hope is to be vindicated as upright in the face of complete public shaming. This means, then, that the friends and neighbors who mock and spit on Job have to witness God being his surety. The people who disrespected him must eat humble pie in being proven wrong. The community shamed him, so the community must see God's God vindicate Job's honor. And yet in Sheol, no one sees anything. The friends can't take a vacation to Sheol to witness Job's vindication. In Sheol, Job may find a resting place, a new home, a family. But if this hope isn't seen by the living, it doesn't really match his hope. Therefore, Job mourns that his only hope left uh, lies in death, but it isn't satisfying hope as it is unseen. Honor and shame is about the community of the living. If the public has wrongly shamed Job, then his honor must be restored within the same community. Sheol might bring with it some comforts and benefits, but it cannot really meet this hoped-for vindication. This is why Job cries out with such passion for God to be his surety before he dies. Job's heavenly witness needs to be quick at advocating him, at restoring his good name over against the cruel friends and the shaming public. If Job's hope has to wait until death, then it will not fulfill his hope in life. No wonder Job is impatient with God. Be my surety before it's too late. And this struggle that we watch in Job is basically the martyr's angst. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us that we will suffer for the sake of righteousness. We will be persecuted for his name. Paul writes that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter reminds us that we will be slandered for our good deeds. And the world hounds the church not merely by physical persecution. Sure, at times the world uses prison, confiscation, and death against the saints. But more often, the world's sharp sword is shame, 
It ridicules and mocks biblical truth and godliness. If you believe God created the world, then you are an unscientific fool. Confess that Jesus was raised from the dead, you are a superstitious idiot. If you confess with scripture that homosexuality is a sin, you are labeled a bigot. You hold that abortion is murder, well then you're an oppressor of women. We preach that Jesus died to appease the Father's wrath for our sin, and this is called child abuse. Yes, the world loves to shame us for holding to the godliness set forth in scripture, both doctrine and life. By harsh bullying and unrelenting disrespect, the world wants us to conform to its ungodliness. It wants to make us cowards towards the truth and Christ. And when we are wrongly shamed for clinging to Christ and his righteousness, we ache to be vindicated. Indeed, shame is a form of punishment, and unjust punishments demand to be fixed. When the Sanhedrin shamed Jesus by condemning him for speaking the truth, he said, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. In Revelation, the martyrs cry out, how long until you avenge our blood? so also we hope to be vindicated in Christ and his truth over against the mockery of the world. And like Job, for this we need God as our surety, which is exactly what God has given to us in his Son, Jesus Christ. The prayer offered here by Job in verse 3 is fulfilled in Christ. He pleads that God would provide for him a surety with himself, which is what the Father did for us in Christ. Sureties pay what you cannot. They free you from what you cannot free yourself. A guarantor takes your failures and defaults upon himself. Thus Christ is our twofold surety as he provided for us his blood to pardon our sin, and his righteousness to justify us. The passive and active obedience of Jesus is our guarantee and surety. His grace and righteousness makes us true and upright so that the world's shame is unjust. If you're shamed as a sinner, this is a just punishment, no vindication needed. But in Christ, the Father makes us the righteousness of God. By the word, Christ roots us in the truth over against the evil lies. By the Spirit, Christ transforms us to walk in godliness. Our uprightness and our good deeds are not our own. They're not of ourselves but they are worked in us by the spirit-activated gospel and the mercy of Christ. By grace we are saints, and his grace is made perfect in our weakness. Our virtues, our wisdom and obedience is the fruits of the spirit. Christ has purified our hearts and our hands to make us more courageous 
in the truth. We then can boldly affirm the truth and defend our uprightness, not because we're arrogant, not as a form of self-congratulation, but as our boasting in the perfect work of Jesus. We are brave in God's truth, not our opinions. We are steadfast in virtue because it's God's holy law and the Spirit's sanctification of us. We can stand up to the world's bullying, not because we're strong, but because we are weak, and in our weakness, Christ's strength is more than sufficient. Moreover, with Christ as our surety, he's given us a certain hope. If the world shames us wrongly, then the world must see our vindication, which is exactly what Christ ensures of us in the day of resurrection. As with Job, our vindication does not come with death, but with resurrection. In death, we enter our Sabbath rest. We go to our true home to be with the Lord. But the work of Christ in us is not vindicated over the evil world until the day of resurrection. Just think of the promises given to us. In the resurrection, the true sons of God will be openly acknowledged and revealed. Since we confess Christ's name on earth, Jesus will confess your name before the Father for all of creation to hear. The world will be judged, but we in Christ will enter the glory of the new Jerusalem. On that last day, the world will enter everlasting shame, but Christ, by his merit, will bring us us into his eternal honor. Thus, where Job is impatient with God, in Christ, we can be patient. By Christ's resurrection, we are enabled to know how good it is to wait upon the Lord. It may hurt and be agonizing, but the world's shaming of us now has no power to separate us from the love of God in Christ. No matter what the world does to us now, we are safe in him, in Jesus Christ. Thus, let our hope never waver from the resurrection. And may we boldly be courageous in the truth and in godliness, in the Lord for his glory, now and always. Praise the Lord.